morning I want to commence a new series of studies in the book of Hosea, the book of Hosea, one of the minor prophets. So if you go to the words, the end of the Old Testament, and you have Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel, which is a really big section, so you can't miss that. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, then Daniel, then you have the little bit book of Hosea. If you come to the rest of the minor prophets, you've gone uh, too far. So that's Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Hosea. And if you put uh, your Bible ribbon in that particular place, then uh, you'll not get lost for next time. Uh, so... When I was in Bethany, we had a member of the church whose family had worked in the shipyard for three generations. And Tom's grandfather worked on the Titanic, uh, was present at its launch, and on board for its initial sea trials. Tom told me that for years, uh, nobody in the yard spoke of the Titanic. It was a taboo subject because a ship that they said was unsinkable sank on Uh, Sunday, the 14th of April, 1912, nearing the end of its maiden voyage, the ship that they said was unsinkable struck an iceberg and sank with the loss of 1,517 lives, one of the greatest maritime disasters of all times. And it is strange uh, when we think that that disaster could have been avoided. Several hours earlier, the ship was receiving radio messengers of danger ahead. But such was the degree of confidence in the structure and the buoyancy of the Titanic, the captain and the crew ignored those warnings and steamed full speed ahead at 22 knots. Even when the ship struck the iceberg, there initially was no panic because the sea was as flat as a pancake and the impact was scarcely felt on the massive uh, frame of the ship. Indeed, some of the younger passengers had a snowball fight with some of the fragments of the iceberg that fell on board uh, the deck. It was a classic example of people ignoring the warnings because they were overconfident about the situation and circumstances they found themselves in. They thought they were safe. It could never happen to them. After all, the Titanic was unsinkable. But you see, just because you feel safe doesn't actually mean that you are safe. That's how Israel felt in the 8th century BC, the period uh, we'll be looking at during our studies in Hosea. Uh, If you look at that little uh, diagram, the kingdom of David, you remember we had Solomon, uh, uh, or sorry, we had Saul, David, Solomon, Uh, Jonathan, could you put that little diagram up for me? So you had uh, the United Kingdom, but in 931, the kingdom divided into two. You had the ten tribes who rebelled against the house of David and formed an independent country of ten tribes uh, uh, in northern Israel. Two tribes remained loyal to the house uh, of uh, David and formed the the nation of Judah. And as you go through the Bible, it's important to keep that distinction in your mind. Now, by the time uh, Amos and Hosea were preaching, Jeroboam II was king in the north, and Uzziah was king in Judah. 
Jeroboam II was a very good king in many ways. It was a time of political stability. Uh, the sea of international affairs were, and politics were calm. It was a time of economic prosperity. To quote Harold Macmillan, the people never had it so good. The land was indeed flowing with milk and honey. And it was a time of national security. The borders were expanded and secured. Not since the days of Solomon had Israel been so prosperous uh, prosperous and felt so secure. But all was not well. There was an iceberg on the horizon. The superpower of Assyria was beginning to mobilize in the east, and Assyria was the iceberg on which Israel would sink and on which the country of northern Israel would perish. But just like the Titanic, it had those radio operators who were receiving and sending out warnings about the danger ahead. They were called prophets. One was called Amos, and the other was called Hosea. Now, the sad thing is that very, very few took notice of these two men and of those warnings. You see, Amos and Hosea were representatives of the old religion in Israel— they stood for the God of the covenant, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. But to the people in 8th century Israel, that was a bit uh, old-fashioned. You've got to get it with it, Hosea. You've got to tune in to the culture, Amos. After all, this is the swinging 8th century. Uh, this is a, a time of progress. We've got to get with the program and stand on the right side of history. You see, the trendy thing to be in, in 8th century Israel was a, a worshiper of Baal. And Baalism was a fertility religion which included all kinds of promiscuity and immoral behavior, including temple prostitution, so that the gods would be aroused in their passions and fertility would come uh, uh, on, the, on the earth. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not commit adultery. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What a bore. We don't need all that Bible bashing. That went out with Elijah a hundred years ago. And northern Israel ignored the warnings of these two prophets. And when the iceberg struck, the nation sank without a trace. Northern Israel ceased to exist as a nation, and the ten tribes that made up that nation became the ten lost tribes and were forever obliterated from the map of uh, the promised land. And if Amos and Hosea teach us anything, they teach us not to ignore the warnings of the Word of God, that we must not become complacent or overconfident in our circumstances. So these two servants deliver this warning to northern Israel, Amos and Hosea. Now, although they uh, preached uh, basically at the same time, delivering the same stark warning, they presented their message in two very different ways. Amos views God almost exclusively as a judge passing sentence on an unrepentant and sinful people. Now, Hosea wouldn't have disagreed with that. But he presents the message in a very different way. 
His message is essentially told in the context of a love story. God is pictured as a long-suffering husband. Israel is pictured as a philandering wife. And Beal is the third wheel in this love triangle. Now, the picture of the husband and wife relationship is picked up many times in the Bible. Isaiah 54 and verse 5, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. Jeremiah 3 and verse 2, Paul says, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. And even in the New Testament, the church is seen and viewed as the bride of Christ. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, in Hosea chapter 1, we have that love triangle graphically set forth to us, which is a theme repeated throughout the book. God is the husband. But we see God pictured in three ways. He is seen, first of all, as a jilted husband. And then secondly, as an angry husband. And then thirdly, as a gracious husband. So first of all, then, notice uh, God is pictured as the jilted husband. Now look at verses 2 and 3. And what I want to do initially is to read them from the NIV. Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. Now, the 2011 NIV says, Take a promiscuous wife and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Now, of course, uh, adultery, even in the 21st century, uh, is still a word of stigma and shame. But in biblical times, the stigma was far greater and much more scandalous because adultery was placed by Moses on the list of capital crimes and so was viewed as something that was reprehensible as murder itself. However, the Hebrew word is much stronger than the two NIVs, uh, much stronger than promiscuous or adulterous. Gomer, Hosea's wife, was a prostitute. Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, was not just an adulterer, she was a, a prostitute, a harlot. And I did squirm a bit when reading the ESV because of the stark translation that it makes. Look at verse 2. Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. In fact, the Hebrew text throws that word at us in verse 2 not three times, but four times. The author doesn't dilute it. He doesn't soften it. He doesn't speak in polite euphemisms. He intends to shock us. Indeed, the likely scenario is that Gomer was one of the temple prostitutes who served at the shrine of Baal. I want you to think of this. A prophet of God is commanded to go and marry a prostitute. Can you imagine a church calling a pastor uh, who call as their pastor a man who would make such a decision and marry such a woman? And Christians down through the years 
haven't failed to be shocked with many of the early church fathers so offended of the idea that they said it was all an allegory. Indeed, John Calvin said it was utterly inconceivable that God would ask one of his children to marry a woman who was to prove unfaithful to him. Of course, they say, Hosea didn't literally marry such a woman. It's just a parable, like the parable of the prodigal son. Unfortunately, there's nothing in the text to suggest that they are right in that assertion. This is no mere literary device. The truth is that the prophets of the Old Testament didn't simply deliver verbal sermons, as preachers do today. Sometimes they turned the message of God into symbolic acts, which they rehearsed before the eyes as well as the ears of their audience. And there are many examples of that in the Old Testament. We have Jeremiah eating the scroll. We have Ezekiel uh, 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 faking, if you like, uh, 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 somebody who was being carried into captivity. This is what um, commentators call prophetic hysteronic. It's not a pantomime. It's no contrived drama. This is an oracle of God translated into flesh and blood by the life of the prophet who delivers the message. Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, a harlot, a prostitute. Now, the message that Hosea um, is conveying is that God is displeased with the adulterous uh, actions of his people. Look at the end of, of verse 2. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the law. Yahweh, represented by Hosea, was the husband, and Israel was Gomer the bride. But Israel had been unfaithful to her husband. She had committed spiritual adultery with Baal. She had given herself over to spiritual prostitution. And that's what makes Hosea's domestic, tragic domestic situation uh, uh, with a wife so sad. Like Hosea, God had been deceived. Israel had been unfaithful. She had cheated on him in her relationship with Baal. Baal worship uh, involved, as I said, all kinds of immoral behavior. And Gomer acted as a temple prostitute, but she wasn't simply physically unfaithful to Gomer, or to Hosea, she was, uh, or to God, she was spiritually unfaithful to God. She was committing spiritual immorality. And that offended and wounded God deeply. Israel's idolatry was not something that God viewed with the detached objectivity of a disinterested spectator. It was something that he felt passionately about. And why? Because God is not some uh, distant uncle to his people or a granny who is tucked away in a corner and remains oblivious to the true activities of their sweet little grandchildren. No. God is the husband of his people. 
The covenant that binds God to his people is a marriage covenant. And Israel, with her flirtation with Baal, was trampling all over her marriage vows. I believe that there is no more important a lesson that we can learn from the book of Isaiah than this. That friendship with the world, flirtation with the world, compromise with the world, prostitution to the world, wounds our heavenly husband and affects him deeply. When we apostatize, when we compromise, when we backslide, when we fail to honor him, when we choose to put other things at the center of our lives and on the throne of our hearts other than the true and living God. It's not some mild irritation he feels. He responds like a jilted husband a victim of spiritual adultery. You know, uh, James picks up that theme in James chapter 4, and he says to his readers, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? And uh, the Amplified Bible translates that. You are like um, unfaithful wives having illicit, illicit love affairs with the world. God grieves over his people. He is wounded by their disloyalty to him. There is no greater emotional trauma to be experienced than the breakup of a marriage, knowing that a partner has been unfaithful. At least in death you get closure. But betrayal and adultery leave lasting wounds. God is grieved this morning. He is grieved over your adultery, spiritual adultery, your persistent, stubborn unfaithfulness to him. He feels like a a jilted husband. We hurt him. We slap him in the face. We turn away from him. We offend him. Every time we walk those streets of spiritual prostitution, the jilted husband, The second thing I want you to notice is the angry husband. Now, those who have been wounded in this way know that um, sorrow isn't the only emotion that you experience or hurt. You feel angry too, and rightly so. Look at verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. And God said, Call him Jezreel, for in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end, put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, one of the great flaws in the thinking of many evangelicals concerns this whole issue of anger. Many Christians think anger is a sin. Anger is something you should always deny. Anger is something that you should vigorously uh, suppress when it manifests itself in your children. I believe that is a dangerously misleading attitude to adopt. How can anger be a sin when we're told repeatedly that God is angry? When Paul tells us, in your anger, do not sin. I know there is such a thing as temper, and that all too often the wrath of God doesn't bring 
about the righteousness, uh, the, the wrath of man doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. Like everything else about us, our anger reflex has been corrupted by the fall. Now, that doesn't mean that anger is always wrong and that it's always right to suppress it. Sometimes a refusal to show anger only serves to make matters worse. A husband who discovers his wife has been unfaithful needs to let her know how angry he is. Or a wife who is constantly suffering abuse needs to break a few plates to know that she's not going to put up with that kind of behavior indefinitely. You see, it's not always a choice between a a loving response and an angry response. It's the ability to feel angry that distinguishes love from sentimentality. And the same is true of God's relationship with His people. He is wounded, yes, but He won't stand around and take that abuse indefinitely. He is the jilted husband, but He is also the angry husband. And Hosea's little prophetic drama uh, is, uh, uh, and, and that's, sorry, reflected in Hosea's little prophetic drama in the naming of his children. That brought that anger out into the open. Gomer has three children, two boys and a girl. Now, the first was certainly Hosea's son, but we can't be sure of the paternity of the other two. Indeed, in verse 2, Hosea is commanded uh, to have children of whoredom. So it may have been that the second two children were actually illegitimate. And each of these three children became a kind of mini-sermon. Every time Hosea called to them in the street, he preached his neighb- uh, to his neighbors the anger of this loving God to which Israel had been unfaithful. The first name is Jezreel. Uh, you see that in verses uh, 4 and 5. Uh, And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a few while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, it sounds an innocent enough name, doesn't it, Jezreel? Sounds okay. Until you realize the connotations that went with that name. Because just a hundred years earlier, Jehu, who was the grandfather of the present king, Jeroboam II, he massacred the whole royal household of Omri. He put them to death. And and Israel knew that that sin had to be accounted for and paid for. It would be a bit like uh, naming your a black family in South Africa naming their child Sharpville or an Ulster Unionist naming their son Teban or, or, um, or uh, somebody in, in Israel, a Jew in Israel, naming uh, their, their son Intifada. Jezreel was a violent blot on Israel's history. Jezreel also meant to scatter And that's what God was going to do. He was going to scatter Israel to the four corners of the earth so that they would no longer be a nation. Then came uh, uh, Loru Hama. Now, if you're using the NIV, they actually give the Hebrew name 
the ESV simply gives the, the translation. You see that in verses 6 and 7. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. A cruel name to give to your daughter, you might think. But you see, that's precisely how God felt about Israel. He would no longer love her. He would no longer pity her. He would no longer show mercy to her. Judah he would love. Judah he would spare, but not northern Israel. Northern Israel had gone too far. When the iceberg struck, he would intervene on Judah's behalf. Look at verse verse 7. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Lo, ah, me, no mercy. I'll show mercy to the house of Judah, but not to the house of Israel. And then Gomer gives birth to a third child. And to the Israelite, there is no more shocking and devastating a name as this. You find it there in verses 8 and 9. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, uh, call his name not my people, Loami, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. I remember in the, the covenant with Moses, God had said to Israel, I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's what the covenant centered on. That's what the covenant was all about, God's relationship to his people. But here in this name, Loami, God repudiates the covenant. This is not some domestic tiff. This is an action that leads to divorce. God, the angry husband, will not keep an unfaithful people in his household. Call him Loami, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. What a powerful warning there is for us here. It's a profoundly dangerous thing to toy with the affections of God and to presume on His grace. There are many aspects of God's character that are infinite. He has many infinite attributes. His patience is not one of them. God's patience can run out. God's patience can be pushed too too far. God's patience can reach its limit. God is not some sentimental Santa Claus who will put up with spiritual philandering indefinitely. He will uh, put you out of the house. He will take you to court. He will issue divorce papers. For infinite patience is indistinguishable from moral indifference, and God will not be that. It's a dangerous thing to trade upon the grace of God and toy with the affections of God. And I have to say to you all this morning, if you're secretly or maybe openly walking the streets of spiritual prostitution, you have made God angry.
God is angry with you. No matter how secure and prosperous you may feel, if you aren't right with God, you're like a passenger on the Titanic who's oblivious to the danger ahead. And maybe you're not openly walking the streets of spiritual prostitution, but maybe your marriage has just gone stale with God, I mean. You know, there's nothing worse than a a marriage where the couple just put up with each other for appearance and the love has disappeared and the love has gone and the love has waned. And you just go through the motions and you pretend that everything's okay to everybody else. And you're like that spiritually. You're pretending to people that everything's okay, but your love is is not burning bright for God. You're not committed as you once were to God. You, you've allowed other things to creep in and soil and spoil your relationship with God. God is angry. And He will not put, out with that, put up with that indefinitely. And if, if that is your condition, I, I just, you're miserable, aren't you? Because there's nobody as miserable as a backslidden Christian. Nobody as miserable as a backslidden Christian because... Your relationship, that that motivates you and uh, is the mainspring of your life. Your relationship for God is gone and you're just going through the mechanical motions of your faith. So we see God as the jilted husband. He's the angry husband. And then he's the gracious husband. Just look at verse 10 at end of chapter 2 and verse 1. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people and to your sisters... You have received mercy. The picture's not all bleak. The very end of the chapter uh, of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, we have this wonderful prophecy which speaks of days of forgiveness and coming reconciliation. Many husbands would find it impossible to forgive a philandering wife, but not with God. He's gracious and he's compassionate. And we find a day coming when the names of the children are changed. See that in verse 10. Lo ami, not my people. They become children of the living God. Verse 11. Jezreel, which spoke of bloodshed and scattering, was also used to to scatter seed. And Israel again would be planted in the sphere of God's love. Lo Ruhamah, not love. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Say to the brothers, you are my people, and to my sister, you have received mercy. A time would come when the houses of Israel and Judah would be reunited under one leader. You notice that? Reunited under one uh, leader, and the promise to Abraham would be fulfilled when the people of God will be like the sand on the seashore. Now, you will know that when God punished Israel, they disappeared. They became the ten lost tribes. They were 
wiped off the face of the political map. There's no such place as northern Israel today. But these verses speak of a time when a leader will come and he will gather the house of Judah and he will gather the, the scattered people of northern Israel and he will bring them together and they will be his people. And if you turn to Romans 9 and verse 25, that these exact words are picked up. And in fact, they're used of the Gentiles and for the inclusion of the Gentiles into the gospel. As indeed it says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called the sons of of the living God. And so Hosea is breaking his heart over the scattering of northern Israel, the demise of northern Israel. But he looks forward to a leader who will come, to the Christ who will come, who will gather not only people from Judah, but people from Israel. And not only people from Israel, he will gather the Gentiles under one leader, and they together will become the people of God. Lo me, not my people. They will become the sons of the living God. How wonderful, how glorious, how precious this is. Yes, God is the jilted husband. He is the wounded, angry husband. But he's also a gracious husband. And he loved the world so much that he sent his son into the world not only to gather his historic people, but to gather all who would come and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? And maybe there are people here and you have wandered from God. I, I just want to tell you that we're standing this side of the cross and there is forgiveness with God. There is cleansing with God. There is restoration with God. There is a reconciliation with God. Maybe I'm talking to people this morning and you've always been low on me. You've always been not my people. There's never been a time when you knew the breath of God in your soul. There's never been a time when you've felt your heart beat in tune with the Holy Spirit and respond positively to the Word of God. But you too, you too, not my people can become sons of the living God. That's the great promise that's given to us in Hosea chapter 1, that he is offended. He is wounded by the actions of his people, but he is a God of mercy and a God of grace and a God who so loved the world that he sent this leader into the world to gather a people to himself under his care. And it's my prayer Whatever spiritual condition you're in, whether you have wandered from God and your heart has been stolen by the attractions of the world, or whether you have never known what it is to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that this morning you might know what it is to be the people of God, children, children of the living God. Amen.